Today on the Potential Psychology Podcast. Parents, and for that matter, a lot of the educational institutions as well, are, are very concerned about what the future of work looks like. Because for many people, education is the pathway to a career. But what do we do when maybe careers that we used to think existed and were stable, or even the very notion of a career itself, what do we do when that disappears? We can explore what the worries are, and we will, and we can explore what the data tells us, and then we will talk very much about what the future of work does and can look like. And then it's the doing of it. You know, what do we need to do to prepare ourselves? What do we need to do to prepare our children? What are the skills? What are the ideas? You know, what are the possibilities? So that we get this sense of, okay, I have some plan of sorts. Welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, psychologist Ellen Jackson, and this is the show in which we explore what it is to be human and how we as humans can fulfill our potential. Welcome back to the Potential Psychology Podcast, and I'm really excited. We have a new series, and I have a new co-host, and he's a wonderful friend of the show, Dr. Joe Sweeney, who has been a guest for two previous episodes, and I had to go back into the archives. I don't. <laughs> one of those conversations was relatively recent, although it feels like a world ago, because Joe... Firstly, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> As I'm kind of just, you know, getting stuck into things here. The first of those conversations was called The Perks and Pitfalls of Working from Home. And we had that conversation in March 2020. It was just as the coronavirus was sweeping the world and so much has changed since. And prior to that, our conversation was on kids' education and the future of work. And that was in July 2018. So the Potential Psychology Podcast had only been on the air a couple of months at that stage. And I didn't realise that it had been quite such a long time. <laughs> so many of our listeners will know you, but Again, welcome. And would you like to just tell us a little bit about who you are and the work that you do before we get in today's meaty conversation about the future of work? Wonderful. Thank you for that introduction. Um, Joe Sweeney, I'm a uh, doctor of education, policy and technology, but I've spent most of my life in the technology field. My passion, however, is some educators call it pathways to employment. How do we create a really powerful pathway for our children to get into the workforce. And that, of course, leads you to uh, where I spend most of my time, which is what does the future of work actually look like? Because it's certainly not going to be what we had in the past. I've actually just finished a, a fairly, you know, very significant study into the lessons that education itself can take from the COVID lockdowns and what the sociological changes, what the educational changes will be. But on top of that, we also did some research just for this podcast. We went out there and we wanted to find out what parents were thinking, not just what educators were thinking. So we can certainly be diving to all of that great uh, research. And it's wonderful. And and this is the first time that mm. we've done any kind of work like this to sit behind the podcast and the show and the series. So this will be a series of conversations that you and I will have regarding the future of work and these concerns and issues and questions and I think opportunities for parents to get a better understanding of what this might look like, could look like, hopefully alleviate some concerns and worries. Mm -hmm. But we have actually asked questions of parents, don't we? we? Some of this data actually tells us exactly what it is that our listeners and a broader sample of similar 
audience, I would guess, have on their minds regarding the future of work? Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think we have to be careful when we make broad generalizations on on a lot of research because there's always self-selection bias and all those things going on. But this was a fairly sizable study, a statistically valid study for Australia um, and the region at the very least. Plus, it's also backed up with dozens and dozens of interviews, which I've also had. So there's a, there's a lot of meat behind this from both the education side, the parental side. But I think that, you know, the key issue for me is that what, what I've been taking from the data is very strongly parents and for that matter, a lot of the educational institutions as well are, are very concerned about what the future of work looks like because for many people, education is the pathway to a career. But what do we do when maybe careers that we used to think existed and were stable or even the very notion of a career itself, what do we do when that disappears? Uh, what do we do with this change? So definitely we're going to be, you know, I'm looking forward to diving into that and having a discussion with you because the other side of this is the cognitive side, the emotional side, really the psychology. In fact, when I was giving a presentation a few weeks ago to uh, an education conference, there was a summit, education summit called EduTech, I pointed out that mental health and screen time and those issues were real factors affecting how children learn and their happiness. And we had to bake mental health into our curriculum, into how we designed our lessons and that received a virtual applause, just that everyone went wild. So, you know, we do need to look at those issues as well. And that's where you come in. <laughs> yeah, wow. It's it's where I come in. I'm just thinking about so many of my colleagues who actually work in positive education and the it's a systems level intervention, I guess. It's really trying to help mm. the whole system of a school or an education institution to live and breathe well-being and positive mental health because of those connections, because we know that those links are so strong that if we are children and grown-ups alike functioning well, then we are so much more receptive to information. We are so much open to learning. We are so much better able to deal with potential conflict or some of the challenges. We're more innovative. We're more creative. You know, there are just so many wonderful things that flow from being in a positive mental state, not all the time. And by positive, I don't just mean happy, happy, la, la, you know, we're all doing fantastic at every moment. And exactly. isn't this just wonderful? That would be a little Pollyanna. That would be unrealistic. <laughs> the, world, the world and life would never look that way. And you also don't learn as much if you're always in that state. You, yeah, you need that so little bit be, of stress, yes. And I think that's it, yeah. So we need that little <laughs> bit of stress. We need that little bit of challenge. And we need to think of positive as curious and you know, sense of achievement. There's a, there's a whole raft of other elements of what in psychology we refer to as being positive. And for those listening, can't see me doing my inverted commas <laughs> with my fingers. <laughs> that is not just happy kind of feelings. But anyway, that that's kind of a whole, and I'm sure we'll weave this into the conversation, Joe. I'm interested, just to give our listeners a little sense, what, what were the sorts of questions that we were asking in this survey in order to collect some of this data? So, you know, one of the big questions that we put right up front was people's really emotional reaction to what the future of work could look like. Were they concerned? What were the worries that they had? How extensive were those worries? We also asked them quite specific questions as well. For example, how much time are your kids spending on screen? How much of that do you think is actually education versus edutainment versus you know, just random stuff? Mm. We also asked questions about the impact of social media on focus. We spent a lot of time in the study 
looking at what were the key skills and not just skills, but really emotional strengths or other character strengths that were expected to be needed in the future. Uh, And we got some very interesting results from some of that. But I think for me, you know, going back to that very first one, which was, are parents worried? Well, I'll just bring up the data here. Mm. We asked a really simple question right up front, which is, do you worry about your children's ability to thrive in the workplace in the future? And a whopping 78.92%, and that's statistically very, very strong, said Mm. yes. And 21% said no. We dug in a little bit further because it's really important when you do these studies that you actually ask the same question in multiple angles to make sure you're getting valid data. And what was interesting there is we, the question was, when, do you, when you think about the future of work, how do you feel? 41% said they're worried and f- closer to 16%, just under 16% said that they were fearful, more than worried. And that correlates strongly back to that, that first question. So definitely the data is valid. Mm. But when we started looking then at the people who had other opinions to it, about 17% said they were excited and about 20% said that they were confident. And so we see this interesting split in the world where people look at the future, they look at the change and they are worried and they Mm. are concerned and it scares them. Personally, I I understand why that is. I I speak to a lot of parents and, and so forth and they are concerned that we're going to a gig economy or definitely real wages are sinking and costs are going up and all of that sort of stuff. Those are all real concerns. But there are other concerns even behind this, such as what's the impact of global warming and climate change? What's the rise of things such as the increased likelihood of international conflicts? And there's all of these things that come into it. But ultimately, I'm I'm an optimist. So uh, when I look at this data, I say, how can I contribute to maybe flipping that on its head and saying, these are big challenges coming up. Challenges, crisis always has opportunity for new work, for new talent to be applied, new thinking. So the very fears that we have are possibly the actual things that will create the future of work and create real opportunities for our kids. I love that. I mean, being an optimist myself as well. And I think I, for any listeners, I know sometimes when you say you're an optimist and I do it all the time because I'm often talking about these topics with groups and, and here on the show, but people who are perhaps not so inclined towards optimism may therefore write your kind of thinking off and just say, well, of course they'll think that way. You know, <laughs> they, they don't see, they don't really understand the worries of the world or that, but it is very much around this mindset. And I think you can be an optimist. And I think I'd, I'd even rather rephrase it perhaps as being hopeful. That's a really good thing. Yeah. I, I like to say when people do challenge me, Joe, you're always an optimist on this stuff. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm actually um, a stoic. I always think of the very worst possible outcome, make it ludicrously insane. And then, you know, I'm always upbeat that you know, we don't quite get things quite as bad. But the other side of this is we cannot afford to wallow you know, this is the thing that actually drives me. It's it's why I'm in this job that, by the way, didn't exist 20 years ago. Mm. We were talking about that. My goal is constantly to say, how can I make sure that that future for the future of work is a good place, both for the people who are working in it, our children, my grandchildren, but also for the planet, for society at large, and that way, you know, I'm a very conservative person, but I'm actually very progressive in what I want for the future. Because if we don't do this now, we're screwed. 
So mm. optimism is a defensive mechanism <laughs> as much as anything else. You know, it's, it's really, we have to do this. So I, I want your listeners to think about that. If you are fearful and you are worried and this is your natural place to be, you can't afford that when you're thinking about your children's future. And I'll put a little psychological overlay on Ooh, that as well please. because <laughs> what we do know and what you've just described and, and what we will endeavour to do over our series of conversations on this topic is create hope in the psychological sense. And hope in the psychological sense is a combination of what we call pathways and agency. So hmm. pathways are having a path, having a plan, having a sense of what it is I need to do. So those things that we'll be able to delve into, we can explore what the worries are and we will, and we can explore what the data tells us. And then we will talk very much about what the future of work does and can look like. And then it's the doing of it. You know, what do we need to do to prepare ourselves? What do we need to do to prepare our children? What are the skills? What are the ideas? You know, what are the possibilities? So that we get this sense of, okay, I have some plan of sorts. You know, we don't know exactly what we're heading towards, but at least we can start to work on a bit of a plan and do some of the doing of that now. And when people have a sense of that plan and they also have a sense of agency, this belief that I can, this belief that I, you know, have the tools within me, that I have the capability within me, that combination of pathways and agency, what the researchers in this field, and I'll put some references into the show notes for anyone who's interested, call the will and the way. I have the will, so the belief in myself, and I have the way, the pathway to do it. And that is what creates psychological hope. So this sense of, which I think when I mm. frame it up for myself like that, you know, it feels less like just this Pollyannery kind of <laughs> whimsical <laughs> optimism, yeah. cross your fingers and hope for the best. It, it is actually a stronger sense of there's something that I can do and I have the power within myself to do it. And that's very much what we will help our listeners get to, I'm hoping, over the course of these conversations to be able to build up that sense of real hope. So whilst we might personally see it through an optimistic lens, there's there's a lot of rigour underneath there, I'd like to think. <laughs> yeah. It's actually interesting. There's a term in quality education models. Every state, every country has a quality education model, but pretty much all of them have this notion of setting expectations, which correlates very closely to your will and way. Mm, yep. uh, it, when students have something to strive towards and they are told that they can get there, but it's going to be work, and then they're given the resources and the, the knowledge to get there, that's when we actually see what we call variance, the increase in, in knowledge, the greater education. This runs probably right through both of our careers. <laughs> it's it wonderful. It does, from the sounds of things, which is, I'm yeah. sure there's a good reason why we always get along and, and have such great conversations, Joe. I have a, a curious question for you. So we know a little bit about the sorts of questions that you've asked in collecting this data. Two things come to mind. One is what's the time frame that people are thinking about when we're thinking about the future? Was that kind of delineated in the questions or is it more of a conceptual just, you know, some point from here? Yeah, I, I kept it conceptual, but we did ask how old are your kids and, okay. and how many children do you have in certain age groups and where are they in their educational cycle? And from that, we can take some really good understandings on what does that future window look like? Interestingly, college and university age students, the worries were less. They were more set in their ways. The spikes seemed to be around children who were in the high school area. And so what we're talking about there is five, 10, maybe 20 years out. For 
parents of much younger children, the data was much more scattered. So this is definitely looking out, say, 20, 25 years. That's certainly the time frame that I tend to do my research. I think trying to go beyond 25 years, we can actually get the technology. We're, we're pretty good at estimating what technology is going to look like. We're really lousy as humans of trying to figure out what the <laughs> sociological impact of that technology mm, is. People. People. <laughs> it's the people problem. So in general, we should be saying that this is about a decade to two decades out view of the workforce. And uh, I'd also say that the majority of the people who responded to the survey were in the uh, K-12, so younger children mm. to high school. We got far fewer people with um, university age students, probably because they're no longer at home and so out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, life. well, it, it's less your response. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's changed. That has changed. <laughs> that's one of the things that we do know from other studies we've done. Definitely staying at home longer through your college years is now the norm. Uh, mm. It's not the exception, and there's mm. no social uh, frowning at that anymore because, quite mm. frankly, our housing market, you just can't afford, you know, kids can't mm. afford to be out there. Mm. <laughs> yeah, like you were saying before, those are sort of, this is never one discrete no. kind of system that we're talking about here in terms of education or work. It's, it, it all kind of mingles in. It's a series of kind of, I'm just imagining Venn diagrams connected, you know, circles connected to circles connected to circles with social, environmental, political, legislative, yep, all the other bits and pieces. I use the actor network theory to solve that one. But anyway, that's a whole okay. other discussion. <laughs> <laughs> See, I just wonder about it and you're actually doing the work to solve it. Joe, my other question in relation to this, just as we're kind of setting the scene, is where does this data, I mean, obviously we've collected this and you've collected this data to, in order for us to have a really meaty conversation, but, you know, when you're producing the research work that you do, who does that go to? What, what is the goal here in terms of being able to change things potentially? Okay. So for a start, this was a personal project. This is a pet project. I am very, very passionate about making sure that the future of work is better. So this one is me trying to gather the data so that I know what the hell I'm talking about. My goal is to sway policymakers eventually, but also industry and so forth, just to sway them to think about these issues. And sometimes having really good data to show them that this is an issue that needs to be looked at is really, really helpful. Data talks. Hmm. But on top of that, I've done in the last uh, couple of years, quite a lot of work in the education sector, sometimes sponsored by technology vendors, but we always have a hands off. You tell us what problem you want us to solve and we'll go and get the information but also for educational institutions, some very large ones, uh, state institutions, Catholic institutions, uh, overseas and so forth. So the data comes from multiple points. For me, I think what I've taken from the last couple of years is the lockdowns that we had with, with education internationally, but certainly in the APJ region, the, Australia, the Pacific region, that actually brought to the fore a lot of changes that have we've been trying to make in education for almost 45 years, uh, certainly in the last two decades. And some of those changes were how to get parents more involved in the process of education, because we know that the second most influential variable, if you will, thing <laughs> to a child's education, to being successful in education, and not only in education, but later in life, uh, this is indexed to happiness. This is indexed to wage growth. This is indexed to suicide rates. This is indexed to involvement in crime. The second most important thing is the parents' 
engagement with their children's uh, literacy, specifically literacy. And literacy doesn't just mean reading, although that's where it starts. And then their involvement in the education process. So forget sending your kid to an elite school. Forget worrying about whether it should be a Catholic or a state or whatever. Read to your kids. Be involved in their education. Now, what happened with COVID is all the parents had to be involved in the education process. (laughs) So involved. I was there. That was me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was all of us. And I think for a lot, you know, what we sort of took out of uh, some of the research I did was a real strong correlation that parents now understand that teaching is hard. I described Mm. at the summit as teaching is effectively uninvasive brain surgery. It's that complicated. And teachers really do need to start thinking of themselves as professionals and presenting themselves as professionals. But part of that is making sure that parents understand what's going on and get them involved. Now, the worst thing that could happen, I think, is not continuing that parental involvement. Now, that doesn't mean that parents have to be on video calls with a student making, you know, just how do we take all of this great stuff that happened just over two years and carry that forward? Because that will move the needle on educational outcomes far greater than almost any other investment we can put into education. And there's a lot of hard data to support that, not just my research, but research going back, as I said, you know, 45 years. So you can tell that's my soapbox issue. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's fascinating. I mean, it is fascinating because I, I, a couple of things were going through my head as you were explaining that. One was that I have two children. One is in year eight at high school. One is in year five in primary school. And so dealing with two schools and I think all the way through there has been this request from schools. You know, we want parents' involvement. We want parents to, you know, be part of the school community. The conversation, the dialogue between the school and the parents is so important. And I don't think anyone has ever explained why. Yeah. So uh, to me, it's kind of like, well, yeah, I kind of get that and I'll do my thing. But I, I know, I mean, I'm just one of those people that if you tell me why it's important, if you tell me exactly what you've just told me, suddenly I look at that need to be involved in a way that is kind of more intrinsically motivating to me because it is about the development of my children, not just, Mm. you know, we want to hear what you think and, or we want you to be involved in school council or we need someone to volunteer to take kids to on a school excursion. So that why is is so important. And the the reality is we don't know why, but we know that the correlation is very high. Well, that's enough. (laughs) <laughs> for me anyway. Oh, uh, very, very high. So to give you an idea of this, I actually studied this extensively in my PhD because I went into my PhD trying to say, why does all this investment in technology and education have no result? Because I wasn't seeing the outcomes. Hmm. So I started to say, okay, what did give outcomes? And this was outside of the teacher themselves. The parent was the next statistical. So the parent is responsible for about, when you strip everything off, of a child's improvement. The teacher is about 53%. And now those are are percentages of how much you're moving the dial. That Mm. was from another report, not one of mine, that was from an older study. And it was specifically looking at literacy improvement. But literacy improvement underpins everything, (laughs) everything. So, you know, I started looking into this much more closely and realised, huh, just giving a kid, you know, computers in the classroom, laptops or whatever, the whole rationale for me doing my PhD was completely wrong. And I actually, there's a paragraph in my PhD which says, I was completely and utterly wrong. 
That's the beauty of research, isn't it? That's it is. why we it do is. it, to discover what we got wrong. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's, that's not to say that technology doesn't have an impact on education because technology shapes the workplace and education shapes the workplace. So we better make sure that those things are in lockstep, which is hard because there's a 15 to 20-year gap between education and the workplace. Even university mm. courses, the best university courses take about minimum of two to th- four years to put together. And in that time, for example, in the technology space or in the media and communication space, the whole industry can flip on a dime. Mm. <laughs> we have to recognize that this is a very, very tough challenge. And the, I believe that the leverage between all of that is the parents' involvement and that going back to that notion of hope that you have, you know, I can make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And so in the context of this conversation, when we're talking about the future of work, I'm trying to kind of link the pieces back together again for the sake of our audience. So we're talking about what work looks like and what parents' concerns are regarding what the future of work looks like. We know we all want the best for our children. Is this shift that we've had thanks to COVID? And I, you know, again, coming back to the optimist thing, it's always nice to be able to look at all the good things that happened as a result of all those lockdowns because there were certainly <laughs> enough challenges and we're all very aware of yes, those. Yes. So is it about, you know, this kind of parents became more involved, started to gain in a greater appreciation, are perhaps more intrinsically involved in thinking about what the future looks like for their children, both educationally and then beyond in terms of career? And then is there a kind of a sense or prediction that we will continue to stay more involved? Has that been a social shift that was happening anyway? First of all, no, it wasn't a social shift. That was okay. one of the things we've been trying to shift for, as I said, multiple yeah, decades. Okay. And, yep. and I think what COVID did is it forced us to try this new way of doing things. I was asked this question at the um, Edutech Education Summit, and my response was, this won't stay in place unless we work towards making it stay in place which means we have to continually work with parents to show them the value that they're putting in is massively, multi, you know, it's a massive multiplier on this on their children. And I, I want to reiterate, the correlations are not just educational outcomes. It's not just that they do better on tests and they do better mm. academically. Mm. The correlation, it's across mental health, it's across the happiness indexes, it's across income, it's across, I mentioned crime, There's actually some examples, I I did a study uh, quite some years ago, about 10, 12 years ago now, where we looked at the correlation to crime and early reading, getting parents involved in their child's reading. You can have an 80% reduction in crime rates, more than 80%, by just getting over over about a decade and a half, Mm. just by getting children to be reading books with their parents and changing that hope, because it's also hope. But going back to why this is, I mentioned earlier, we don't know why. I have a theory. (laughs) there's multiple theories around (laughs) this but i think it is as simple that ultimately children if you look at what play is play is pretending to be an adult the dolly taking care you know so their Mm. children's play models what they see and one of the prime model role models that they have for good or bad or indifferent or whatever is parents so children want to be their parents And around the age of seven, there's also a gender issue which kicks in about where is my place? Am I Mm. maternal, paternal? And all, you know, so we get some echoing of that. But ultimately, if the parents are engaged in education and are modeling that behavior that they're interested, the child will be interested in their own development. 
And I think it is as simple as that. Mm -hmm. I've heard all sorts of other cognitive theories and so forth, but at the end of the day, children want to be what they see in the world around them. Mm. Now, this does have an impact on how we talk about the future and, you know, social media, which is why we ask questions about social media, television and so forth. Uh, I've walked around multiple schools where I've seen kids playing Big Brother, literally playing that Big Brother. And it's not nice play, i got to say. No, <laughs> I'd never thought of that. I do remember playing Star Wars when I was at school exactly. in 19... 19- so I started in 1978 <laughs> in prep in Victoria. I know that's a long time ago. I'm but Star older. Wars came out in 1977 and we played Star Wars. And yeah. it was funny because everybody, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everyone it, wanted to be the certain gay anyway. Yeah, yeah. exactly. There was only ever one female role. I don't know. It was complex yeah. for five-year-olds. Yeah. So, so going back to your question, you know, will this just stay? No. I think it forced the issues. It showed us that this could be done. But I really think that we have to put a lot of work in, uh, and I say to all of your listeners, please think about, you know, you don't need to be in every classroom lesson or whatever. The data which I have uh, and multiple studies have shown is that you only need about half an hour of engagement with your child, good engagement with your child in their literacy development and their education from the age of zero, (laughs) by the Mm. way, folks. uh, Get in early with this. But as they get older... It's less required that you're explicitly involved in that learning process, but being engaged and interested in showing that you're interested and supportive, that's hugely important. That was going to be my question because even thinking about our audience who, you know, most of whom their children are beyond zero already. (laughs) (laughs) are still to start that journey, but for many of us, you know, we're we're further into that. So Mm. just to alleviate any, we will be talking a little bit about these worries as we kind of delve in further over our subsequent conversations. But for anyone who's worried now about whether or not, you know, how much is enough engagement, if you're talking about a, I'll throw a couple of ages at you, you can tell me what sort of things we might be doing. If you're talking about a a grade, say, two or three child, what kind of thing might a parent do that you think would be? Okay. So from that sort of, you know, kindy to year two, three, just bedtime reading. It's really that simple. One of the great pieces of research, I encourage, it was a great program. They called it three by three. So basically three books, 10 minutes each, one old, a favourite of the child, one new, something from the library, and one from school. And the schools do give home these, these readers. Yep. And it's not just a matter of reading the book. Run your finger along. Stop every so often and say, uh, what's that word again? Now, the old books, they will know. And mm. that's called sight reading. So there's a whole range of you know, common benefits to that. But also the new books will have new words in them that the child doesn't know. Let them work that out. One of the things I love seeing as well, this is another recommendation for parents of younger students, is when you're walking out in public and you see a sign, ask your child, what does that sign say? Get them to read to you. Say, what's mm. going on over there? That's a funny thing. What is that? Because if you think about actually what education is. It's being able to make sense of the world around you so that you can affect it. That's one definition of education. <laughs> There's I others. love that definition though, isn't it? When you think about it, so much better than just passing tests and... <laughs> oh, that's... Oh, don't get me started well, on that I one. Can't <laughs> get you started. That's a whole lot of conversation. And in fact, that's one of the things, standardised testing is one of the things which is totally inappropriate and almost counter to what the future of work is going to look like. Mm. So mm-hmm. no, there's mm-hmm. a whole bugbear of mine. Yep. But we have to get the kids through the test. So, yeah. But if it's that, then it's all about 
linking them the joy of connecting the internal thinking process, language, art, music, all of those things with the world around them. And I love watching parents, you know, I'm, I'm one of these terrible people that when I see a parent doing really good things like that, you know, pressing the pram and saying, look at that, you know, what's that dog doing? And you know, just little questions like that, it stimulates those language centers. Mm. There are physiological changes that happen. You can actually scan, and we've done these tests, not me, but others have done these tests, where you see that there's physiological changes when, when children are engaged in this way. So in early years, just read to your kids. It's that mm. simple. What about when they get to kind of year six and seven, perhaps? So that kind ah. of says some big developmental shifts that go on there around that 12, 13 age. And it differs from gender uh, because uh, mm. girls do, uh, you know, this is a generalisation, but mm. girls mm. do mature a little bit faster in, in, uh, mentally in this space. This is the age just leading into gender identity, I think we'd, we'd call that. So mm. boys deciding that they want to be like this man. Now, these are the roles that makes me a boy. You know, yep. because remember, it's all about play. They're wanting to be mm. these these future things, girls otherwise, and everything in between. The very interesting piece of data that comes from this that that makes me say this is a very real and dangerous thing in, in terms of an educational is that that is around the age that boys start disconnecting with reading, mm. and they do so because the majority of the teachers currently are women in that age group, and their mothers are traditionally the people who read to them at night. They don't see their fathers reading very much anymore. And this is also a problem to do with digital devices because you might read a paper on an iPad, mm. but the kid is also connecting that with playing, you know, zombies versus plants or whatever it is, mm. which is, by mm. the way, not great educational value. <laughs> don't get a lot better. <laughs> it's not a negative, as some people say. It's just a lost opportunity for yes, growing the brain. Yes, yes. So boys start to disengage. There was a number of really good series of books written quite some years ago Del Toro Quest is an example of that, where they took the literacy that the boys were tending to move towards, video game literacy, if you will, and they took that and they created books that follow that narrative style and uh, explicitly with trying to get the boys to re-engage or keep engaged mm. with reading. And it worked. There's some data that suggests that that worked. But what I would say is that the best thing that you can do is dads read to your kids too. <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I have absolutely one of those. I have a 14 year old who I, books have been a joy in my life forever. My younger son is a big reader. I don't think he'll give it up. I think there's enough, <laughs> but the big one, and it's interesting that you say that because my husband reads a lot, but it's always on his phone. I mean, he will be reading about birth of the universe and all sorts of really, you know, weird and wonderful things. Does he discuss it? At I the don't know that he does. Oh, I don't know that okay. he, because I think he tends to do this perhaps at night? Well, yeah. the, the discussing and even just having a discussion about what you're reading is modelling behaviour. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, probably those we do groups. have those yes. conversations to some extent. So, yeah, I'll, I'll persevere. But it was very interesting actually because I, I took, this is getting off the topic, but anecdotes are always interesting, I think. <laughs> I took my eldest son to his first parent-teacher interview, Year 7, last year at his new school. And his teacher a number of his teachers are men and I walked up to this interview and looked at the teacher and went, you look like a 22-year-old rugby player. <laughs> you don't look like a teacher. You know, you have that kind of idea in your mind of what a teacher should look like and this was a, a young man who was 20 years at least my junior and it was just a bit kind of, anyway, obviously had fantastic rapport 
with the kids and we were talking about reading and he said that he had also kind of dropped off reading at around that age but had eventually got on to do a literature degree at university and became an English teacher, which was really interesting. So he was trying to give me a bit of hope, I think, because I said, I'd love him to read more, but he won't. Um, And he said that he did come back to it. Now, I wonder whether, you know, if enough of that has been modelled and and perhaps there is a period where that drops off and they come back, if if it's kind of there in in the household, in the social environment, in their core. Yeah, that's a hard question because there's so much that now cuts down to personality Mm. and what other modelling they're getting and who are their other role models. Mm. I will say when I was doing my, because I actually had to become a teacher in order to do the research I wanted to do in education, even though I never saw myself as being a full-time teacher, Mm. I Mm. had to become a teacher because I don't believe that you can talk about something unless you are it. No, you lose a bit of credibility, don't you? So I was in classrooms and I would always choose the schools that nobody else would choose to go to for the practice and the, the internships mm. because those are the schools where, one, I could experiment safely. Yep. I could do yep. things for the children that would not normally be done by a student teacher. I was also a mature age student going in, so this was a very unusual situation. Mm. But I very quickly discovered that in quite a few of these schools, uh, there is a lack of role modelling of males and, and that affects the young boys' literacy. So what I would do is I'll wear a fishing jacket with badges all on the back and I'll stuff the pockets with little books, little science books and things. Uh, it was always early childhood, that's what I was more interested mm, in, mm. Uh, and little science experiments and stuff. And I would just wander around the playground with this big, with a scruffy beard, and I would be like the Bushman teacher because uh, <laughs> I love gardening. We also did gardening yep. programs and I taught that. And it was incredible. We do need to be cognizant that there are social constructs around gender and around stereotypes and around expectations that can switch children off because it's mm. all – this is, comes back to this idea that it's modelling behaviour. So some of the things I took from those very personal experiences, and some of them are quite sad, certainly when you get to areas of Indigenous education as well, where they're not represented in, in the media as often as they could mm, be, mm. or in immigrant populations and so forth, we have some serious disengagement going on there. So what I did take from that is just getting the parents involved, showing them that there is this way of being, letting them play and think that they could be this. Mm. Huge. And that's that expectations thing, though. It comes back to that pathways and I think you called it the will and the way, showing them mm, that there mm. is a future if they work at it. It's, mm. it's incredibly, incredibly rewarding when you see it taking place too. So, Joe, we were kind of working our way through the age groups there and <laughs> oh, I'm yeah. conscious that we'll, we'll kind of start talking shortly about where to from here with these conversations mm. because we've we've kind of delved into the parental role, the parental responsibility. Mm. I think that gives some real context for parental worry, the stuff that's come out mm. perhaps in some of this data. Before we get into the kind of, you know, where to from here, what if you've got a, a child in right sort of the upper high school levels? What What is it that you would want to see from a parent in terms of engagement that you think will support and help? Well, there's a couple of interesting things there. The first of all is something which we call authentic learning. And authentic learning is real-world exercises. And they're the things that actually prepare you to work in teams and, you know, work in the real world. Hmm. And unfortunately, with many schools, teach to test because they've got to get you past that school certificate and then they've got to get you past the HSC. And it becomes almost this artificial, you're not actually creating knowledge for self-reflection, for being able to solve problems and so forth. 
And that came up with some of the data. A lot of people are very concerned that schools are not teaching sufficient creativity. And we don't just mean creativity as in the arts. Creativity Mm, mm, in all mm. things, problem solving, let's call it. Mm, mm. So at the very time when we really need kids, for example, using 3D modelling software to create something which they're going to sell on eBay, you know, conceptually, uh, and then print it with a 3D printer down the road or, you know, that's one real example. Another one I had is, you know, do a stop-motion animation of the history of the town and then use that to promote inclusivity for the Indigenous population that you're a representative of. These are all real things that can be done. So at the very time when we need that, (laughs) a lot of schools aren't doing that. And I think that's a disservice, and I also think that's why so many parents are become disengaged at that level. My advice to parents is talk to your kids about what the things are they want to do. I'll give you an example. My son, who did not have a good time at school, both my children were born in Hong Kong. They were raised through that system, which is a much more, so we say, static system than the Australian system. So he didn't fit well. But he loved music. And he's a fantastic guitarist. And there was a gentleman down the road who's a lupia. He makes, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, he makes, builds custom guitars. So my son went and worked for him. I chipped into the salary, but my son made himself guitars and worked and worked the shop and did authentic activities. My daughter, very artistic. So we made sure that she had all the software and all the technology that she needed to make herself a comic book that she created and printed. So... That was authentic learning activities. The child defines what they're interested in and then the parent and hopefully the school, uh, in both cases, the schools were very, very supportive of these external activities, giving the children time to this, but they go out and they start experimenting with the skills that they want. Now, my son did not follow his guitar-making career. My daughter did follow her career. My son's gone off in a different career, and that's okay because that's part of the discovery process. So in that upper age group, I strongly encourage parents to have good discussions. And it's not, what do you want to do in the future, son? No, where do you see yourself in five years, daughter? No, it's what switches you on? I know some children, uh, in fact, one of my um, relatives' son has just been accepted in Macquarie, which he's ecstatic about for media and communications. And he's been running a Twitch channel, something I don't fully understand, a video game (laughs) watch channel, you know, I guess it's like esports or whatever. And he got in because he's been doing that and his whole room is set up like this amazing studio. And he's, he knows everything about how to twitch. <laughs> so, and, and his parents have been incredibly supportive. And this is what I think we need in those upper mm. groups. What is it that lights you up? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's so interesting that you say that because I think there's some, some evidence to suggest that that is also... Well, I mean, we are talking before about the predictors of mental health and well-being as well, but that ability to help kids to find what lights them up and, and for that to be okay, mm. you know, whatever that is. And, and I think that's where a lot of my perception is, at least, and I haven't quite got there, but the disconnect between what school is and should be, and particularly if you're an older parent as I am, you know, my school experience was a long time ago. The system was very different then to perhaps mm, what it is now. Not as different as you would expect. Well, maybe <laughs> That's not. the problem. That's the problem. Yeah, During COVID, not. yes. <laughs> it, it should be, yeah. as you're saying. But, yeah, well, maybe, maybe it's your own mindset of what it ought to be or what mm. it used to be or your mm. own experience of what school was like and then whether or not that fits with, you know, this world that has changed and that kids can create their own, you know, this content creation piece is fascinating that kids can have their own Twitch channels and and be running, you know, essentially businesses. Absolutely, or, yep. Uh, yeah, 
from their bedroom with the technology, which was certainly not something that happened back in the day. Mm. Joe, mm. We've, we've woven this conversation all over the place and I think what I'm hoping we've done is set up for parents a, a bit of a sense of you have perhaps concerns but also you have power in this yeah. and that these pieces that you might be grappling with now if you have school-aged children, it's very much related to what the future of work is. It's going to look like or your children's ability to thrive in that environment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Am I getting that right? Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, and, and I think thrive is the important word there because it is not enough to be a human and just exist. And thrive will mean, you know, if we choose that word very specifically, I, I know when we're talking about it, because thriving is not just about money. It can be. It's about being everything you want to be and everything you can be and possibly more. Now, usually always a little bit more. <laughs> fulfilling your potential. I've got my shirt on today yes. for anyone who's watching it. It's about fulfilling your it, potential. It's, it's almost like there's a there's a tagline for this. <laughs> Who would have thought? Who would have thought? And Joe, just quickly, so what, what will we talk about in our subsequent conversations? We've kind of done a bit of an intro this time, but what are our topics to come? I think the next thing that we should really look into are the skills. You know, what are the traits? And when I talk about skills, it's it's more like what are the traits? What do we need? We did a lot of research to try and understand what parents think they are, but also there's very strong indicators about what the future of work might look like. Um, there's been a lot written on this and some of it's very, very accurate. So we'll, be, we'll, we'll go into those skills explicitly. And I think the natural thing that then comes from that would be, well, how do we develop those traits, those skills in our children in different age groups? That would be, I think, the next step. We also will, in a later episode, I, I would love to sort of dive into what is this thing called the future of work? What are the jobs yes. going to be? That will be fascinating. I had a great one. And this didn't come from our survey. This was actually in a discussion on a channel about AIs. I experiment with a lot of AI technology. This is an AI that does artwork called Midjourney. And one of the people said, oh, I can see that my new career is going to be AI prompt writer. There you go. And I just went, yeah, there's a real craft in writing these prompts to get the AI to generate artwork. There's a real mm. skill in knowing mm. how the AI thinks. Mm. So it's sort of like a psychologist for AI. It's a workplace psychologist for AI. So. A psychologist for artificial intelligence. Who would have thought? Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. You mentioned before our homework. So we are, as part of this series, doing a little bit of some, some homework prompts for our listeners who want to, because again, this is part of this pathways and agency, these will and the way being able to kind of really actively get involved in this so that you can assist, not only assist your kids, but I think perhaps alleviate some of your own concerns, build that hope in yourself, because obviously, again, from a well-being point of view, if you are thriving, your kids also have much greater prospects for thriving. So the first of these, and all credit to our wonderful assistant, Jay, because Jay works for Jay, both. she's fantastic. <laughs> Jay works for both myself and for Jay in slightly different capacities, but we've collaborated on this. A little infographic, kind of one pager that you can download that we'll put in the show notes on the future of work. And it does introduce the skills that can help prepare our kids for the jobs of the future. So you can download that and have a good look at it and a think about it. And then that will give you um, some good priming information for the conversation that Joe and I will have next. Great. And, and can I add one little piece of, of just based on this conversation? If sure. you are a parent of a younger child, 
say, under, under seven years old, visit your library. A lot of libraries have early reading programs. If you're a parent of a child who's not yet at school, do, do this as well. And they will often recommend books and also give you instruction on how to read and how to read in a way which really encourages literacy. If I could have one wish (laughs) is that that type of program, every parent before they're allowed to have a child would have to go through that that program, you know, know how to use books. Parenting preparation. (laughs) Yes, parenting preparation. So let's make that one one extra piece of homework for parents with younger children because it's not like they, you know, it's not like they don't have enough to do already. (laughs) No, No, exactly. But I I can tell you, having spent a lot of time in public libraries with my children when they were small because it was just something you could do. Mm. It's free. Children are allowed there. They run story times. They run activities. They're usually very local to your geographic area. They they are a wonderful resource for parents' sanity as much as children's literacy. Good point. (laughs) Good place to be. Thank you, Joe. Um, A wonderful conversation as always. And we will be back with the next topic in our next episode. Thank you for listening. That was just the first of my series of conversations with Dr. Joe about the future of work and how we can prepare not just our kids and the next generation for what's to come, but really prepare ourselves too. There's plenty more in this great series, including a discussion of technology. Will the robots really take over? And the skills and capabilities that kids will need to really thrive in their future careers, both topics that we'll cover in the coming weeks. If you're interested, you can still participate in the survey that Joe and I discussed in this episode. His research is ongoing and it's a really simple set of questions to answer. You'll find the link in our show notes for today's episode and you can also see the live results from the survey. There's a great dashboard that you can access online to see all of the survey responses as they happen and there's a link to that in the show notes too. If you'd like to know more about Joe, we have a link to a fun Q&A as well. We've also listed all of the resources that we mentioned in this episode, and we have those interactive show features if you're listening in on Spotify or Anchor, including our Q&A, and you can send me a voice message on Anchor, which is pretty cool. Maybe you have a question for me or for Joe. Maybe you have a great suggestion for a topic that you'd like to see me cover on the show. Let me know via voice message, either through the Anchor app or at anchor.fm forward slash potential psychology. We'd also love it if you could rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you're listening on. It's amazingly helpful feedback for us and it does ensure that the word gets out about the show and the great guests who share their wisdom with us. So go along if you haven't already, hit subscribe, find the rate and review button. I'm not sure what it is on the different applications. Find a way to rate and review and We'd really appreciate that. Finally, don't forget you can now become a special VIP member of the Potential Psychology Podcast community with access to our bonus episodes. You'll find out more at the website potential.com.au or at anchor.fm forward slash potential psychology forward slash subscribe. I'll be back with Dr. Joe soon in our second episode for this season, discussing the timeless skills we can cultivate in our kids for them to thrive in the future. But until then, stay safe, stay well, and take small steps to fulfill your potential. Mm-hmm.